I do think it is entirely possible to drink too much coffee, and I think he probably drinks too much coffee, your pastor. What do you think? You got more energy than the Energizer Bunny. I'm telling you, you're, you're just an exciting guy to be around, and it is a privilege to be here at Bethel. And my brother Philip, you know, there's just nothing like coming home. And, uh, and for you, you get to come home to Bethel. There's biblical implications with that. But I, I get that, that chance every now and then to go back to my home church, which is Hopewell Baptist Church in Savannah, Tennessee. So I grew up not too far from here. And, and there's just so much that floods into your soul. And, and, uh, and every time I stand and preach at Hopewell, I, uh, I get teary-eyed as I think about those senior adult ladies that prayed for me when I was a 15-year-old preacher and, uh, and prayed for me until they died, and, and, uh, and I will be forever grateful for those precious relationships. And so I am identifying with you vicariously today and uh, grateful for my home church as well. And so I pray that this will be a rich time for you this week to just be uh, back home at Bethel. I want to thank you for being here. You don't know me from Adam's house, Cat, but uh, I sure appreciate the prayers that you have offered up on my behalf, and, uh, and I trust that the preparation that has gone into these days that we're going to spend together will not be in vain, as I trust God's Holy Spirit is going to shower down upon us during these days. I want to invite you, if you have a copy of the Word of God, to go ahead and be finding the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read there in just a few moments. This week as we give our attention to revival, I think it's important that we start with first things first, and that's what I'm seeking to do today. Years ago, 1962 to be exact, evangelist Billy Graham was sound asleep in a hotel room in Seattle, Washington when he was awakened with what he later called a burden to pray for Marilyn Monroe. And as he spoke about this burden, he said that it was so overwhelming that he just began to pray fervently for the salvation of Marilyn Monroe. Now, those of you who are younger, uh, she was a beautiful woman, poster girl, and movie star. Uh, you've probably seen her image here or there, but Marilyn Monroe was she? She was that woman at that time that uh, was, that was the Kim Kardashian of her day, and everybody recognized her face. Everybody knew her story, and Billy Graham prayed for her, and he woke up the next morning with with still a burden for Marilyn Monroe, and so he had his uh, people to contact her agent and to try to set up a meeting with Marilyn Monroe. He was basically laughed at as the agent said that that was not going to happen, and, uh, but the agent eventually said, well, possibly in two weeks you can meet with Marilyn Monroe. The tragedy of that story is that two weeks after that fact, Marilyn Monroe was dead. And the meeting at which Billy Graham desired to share with her the hope of the gospel never happened because she died before it happened. Let's read God's Word this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to focus especially on verse 3, but we're beginning in verse 1 to help set the context. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. 
For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, those of us who've been around church for any amount of time, and, and i got to tell you, I didn't grow up in a religious home. I didn't grow up in a family of preachers. I didn't grow up in a family that went to church. My family was unchurched. I'm the product of a bus ministry from back in the 70s when those buses were, would go out from our church property and one would come in my neighborhood and on Saturday mornings they'd pass out bubble gum and Sunday mornings they'd come back and pick us up and, and, uh, and, I, and I started going to church that way without my family and I gave my heart to Christ without my family being in church with me and for years and years I went to church, surrendered to preach, became a pastor, all of this without my family going to church. My dad didn't give, get saved until he was 55 years old. Six years later, he passed away. My mom was a believer, but through some circumstances, had not gone to church much during my lifetime. She passed away uh, around the same time as my father. And so for the most part, I, I didn't even grow up with a family at all that, that went to church. But I've got to tell you, even though I grew up in church without my family, uh, I, I, I came to, to Christ in a very powerful way, but, but, but perhaps you've been around church for a long time, and, and it's easy for, for matters of the faith to become old hat to us and, and to just become established things that we take for granted. And so perhaps this morning when I talk about salvation, perhaps, perhaps in your mind that word just sort of flies over your head without you really giving much attention to it, and you don't really hear the significance of being saved, the magnificence of being saved. I'll give you an example. Now, this was a couple of years ago. I, I went to the store to buy some, some soap, some bar soap. I like to buy Dove soap. That's what my wife likes. And so we get Dove bar soap. And this particular day, there was a packaging of Dove bar soap that included, you know how companies will, will include one of their other products, a little trial size, in with the package? Well, I looked at this package of soap and included was this little bottle that said uh, intensive repair on it. And I thought, I need some intensive repair lotion because I've, I've been wearing flip-flops, and this is TMI, uh, but when I wear flip-flops, sometimes my heels get a little dry, and, and I thought some intensive repair lotion on my heels would be really nice. And so I bought this soap. I was going to buy soap anyway, but hey, I got this intensive repair lotion for free. And I went home, and that night I immediately began putting the lotion on my feet. I mean, I, liberally, I was just smearing that stuff on my feet, and then I would sleep with it on my feet at night. And I'd been doing that about a week when my daughter, who at that time was about 14 or 15 years old, she looked at me and she said, are you putting that stuff on your feet? And I looked at her with that, duh, what does it look like I'm doing kind of look? I said, well, yeah. She said, you know that's conditioner for your hair, right? 
I said, what? She said, that is conditioner for your hair. That's not lotion. And I looked at the bottle, and I read the fine print, and sure enough, it's intensive repair conditioner for your hair. But I, I saw those words, and I just drew my own conclusion. Didn't care about anything else on the Bible. Sometimes when the preacher gets in the pulpit, and he mentions words that sound familiar, we just, we just assume we already know. And we jump to conclusions, and we miss the significance and the magnificence of what it is that God wants to say to us. What is so great about salvation? The writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What is so great about God's salvation? Perhaps it would help if we clarified what it means to be lost and then saved. The idea of being lost in the scriptures is uh, one that is very picturesque. For instance, the idea of being lost, perhaps a ship that is lost at sea. When that ship is rescued, then that lost ship is saved. Someone who is sick is healed. And so the sick person is saved. Take that along a certain logical line, and, 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 and perhaps you could see in our time, in our day, uh, a piece of meat that has passed its expiration date, and the meat is now rotten. If somehow that meat could be restored, then it is saved. An automobile that is involved in an accident where the vehicle is totaled, and that definition meaning that it will cost more money to repair the vehicle than it's actually worth. And, and, and yet if that vehicle could be restored, then it is saved. All of these ideas go into the, the biblical understanding of being lost and being saved. The fact that we are like a ship without a rudder, lost at sea, and the hand of God draws us into His harbor. We are saved by His grace. The idea that, that, that we are sick with sin, sick unto death with sin, dead in our sins, and yet the Lord restores us and heals us. We are saved. And the truth is that we are rotten meat. That is beyond hope and help. It's not, you cannot put enough spices on rotten meat in order to make it good again. Once it passes that date of expiration, it is done and over with and is good only to be thrown away. And yet God can take the rottenness of our hearts and can restore us and can save us. Our lives have been totaled, wrecked by sin, and yet God can take the, the, uh, the most wrecked life imaginable and He can restore that life. That is being saved. Understand that it is God doing the impossible. It is God doing the unlikely. It is God doing what no one and nothing else can do. We may attempt to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but that is impossible. Only God can pick us up when we have been knocked down by sin. And so the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, what on earth does it mean that our salvation is so great? As we look to the second chapter of Hebrews, we find the writer of Hebrews challenging Jewish Christians. We're going to take this in context. Jewish Christians to be careful not to drift 
in their faith. Now, just as a boat or a person can drift away by the, the, the gentle rocking of the waves, a person can be lulled into complacency and mediocrity by the currents of culture and the tides of temptation. Bottom line, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that we have to be more intentional about our faith. We have to be more intentional when it comes to following Jesus. We cannot be flippant in our faith. It pains my heart to say it, but far too many people who are claiming to have a relationship with Christ, claiming to be followers of Christ, have such a casual attitude toward Christ and toward His church and toward His truth and what it means to be a Christian, and none of that should be the case. If we have been gloriously, radically saved by the grace of God, then it should do something so deep within us that we cannot get over it. But it will radically revolutionize the path of our life. And the writer of Hebrews essentially asks in verse 3, when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's essentially saying, what hope do we have if we discount and we disregard the only hope of salvation that God has made available? There is only one way to be saved. There is only one path to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. And if we discount and we eliminate that path of salvation, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's not suggesting that believers can fall from grace and lose their salvation, for those of you who grapple with that question. That's not his point. That's not even on the writer's radar What he's getting at is that if we are saved, then we cannot live as if we are not. If we are saved, then we cannot live as if we are not. If a person can just walk away from faith and live as if nothing ever happened, then their actions raise serious doubts about the genuineness of the faith that they once professed. What I'm saying is that if, uh, if you can live as if nothing ever happened, then dear friend, probably nothing ever happened. When you supposedly prayed to receive Christ and perhaps stood before a body much like this and, and, and identified with Christ in the waters of baptism, if there is not a radical change that takes place in your life, and listen, I, I'm not the measuring rod as to the, the time frame of, of when that change happens and how quickly that it happens. I was 10 years old when I gave my heart to Christ and surrendered to His authority in my life. But growing up in the home that I grew up in, good people, just not religious people, but I grew up in a home that I didn't really get any encouragement in that regard. My family planned things on Sundays and and I was a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kid, and they made me go with them and skip church. And, and, and so i got to tell you that for the first few years of my faith, my faith floundered. When I was about 14 years old, I got traction, and I took off. But, but I, I, I realized that that change sometimes is within a time frame that only God can see and only God can know. But I'll put it this way, if the trajectory of our lives, if, if the leaning of our lives is not in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to ask ourselves whether or not we have really met Christ in a heart-to-heart collision of salvation. 
This is why I feel so compelled today to preach about what makes salvation so great. Because if we can get just a glimpse of how wonderful God's salvation is, then we cannot help but fall in love with Jesus, whether it's the very first time or all over again. And so what makes, what makes God's salvation so great? If we're going to heed this warning in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And we need to know what is so great about God's salvation. Let me give you three reasons that I think God's salvation is so great. First of all, God's salvation is so great because it is a whoever salvation. How many times in the Bible do we hear that word whoever or good King James English whosoever? And it reminds us that the gospel came for everybody and anybody who was willing to believe. Whoever, whoever, whoever. We see that word over and over and over again. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What I'm saying is that it doesn't matter who you are or who you've been. It doesn't matter what you think you've done that would, that would cause God to love you less. The gospel is for anybody and everybody. The, sa the salvation of God is so great because it is a whoever salvation. I don't know where you might be with the Lord today, but if you don't know Christ, I want you to know that whoever is you. That's right. It is you. Whoever. God wants to save anybody and everybody. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. Amen. And so God's salvation is great because it is a whoever salvation. Second, it is great because it is a whatever salvation. It doesn't matter what you think you've done to keep God from loving you or to keep God from saving you. Whatever it is, God's grace will cover it. Isaiah 59, 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. I was meeting with a fella just the other day, Thursday, in fact, at a Chick-fil-A in, in our city. It's one of my mobile meeting places. And um, I was meeting with him, and he's a deputy with the sheriff's department, was recently baptized in our church, tatted up like nobody I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he's got tats all the way up his face neck and arms and I mean he's first time I met him he said you know what all this is I said what he said this is rebellion I said well buddy you got, you got a lot of rebellion going on there he said my daddy told me you will not get a tattoo he said I, I couldn't stop <laughs> he said I got one and got another and got another and another and another just to show my daddy I couldn't get a tattoo he said brother I got Elvis Presley tattooed on my back I said, man, I think somewhere along the way you went overboard. But God, God has gloriously saved this old boy. And, uh, but we were sitting in Chick-fil-A, and he said, man, I read a verse in the Bible the other day, and i got to ask you about it because I think, maybe, I, I think maybe I've done this. And I said, what? He said, I was reading where Jesus said something to the effect of, 
if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's an unforgivable sin. He said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not going to get to go to heaven, am I? And I smiled, and, and I said, Brother, let me tell you something. You have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He said, but I said terrible things about God. And I said, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He said, how do you know that? And I said, what Jesus means by that is a matter of rejecting the Lord. And if, if you die having rejected the Lord, there's no forgiveness for you on the other side. Right. That is the unforgivable sin, refusing to accept and to receive the grace and the goodness of God in His salvation. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the Holy Spirit. It is to reject His working in your life. And I said, Josh, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and what you've done in following Christ is real, then it is impossible for you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because you have received the Spirit into your life. But I'll tell you, that question that Josh asked me is not an uncommon question. Have I done something that is so terrible, so dark and devilish, that God would not receive me into heaven? I'm convinced that that's why some folk don't want to come to church. Because they have convinced themselves, or shall I say, they have fallen under a cloud of deception by Satan himself to believe that they're beyond hope, they're beyond help. There's no need for me to go to church because it can't do anything for a sinner like me. But I stand before you today to tell you that God's salvation is great because it is a whoever salvation and because it is a whatever salvation. One of the more philosophical arguments at this point is if God hates sin, then how could He possibly love me? If God hates sin, how could He love me? Some of you perhaps are living inside that very question today. Maybe you're going through the motions of religion, but in your heart of hearts, you're struggling. If God hates sin, how could He possibly love me? And without sounding too cliche-ish this morning, let me say that while God hates the sin, He does love the sinner. And do you know how that can even be possible? It's because your sin is not who you are, your sin is what you do. But it is not who you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God. Therefore, you are treasured above and beyond all of creation. And God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. One of my favorite passages at this point comes from the New Testament letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if that passage stopped right there, there's nothing but bad news in that. 
But the very next verse, verse 11 says, Paul says to them, such were some of you. Those are labels that once upon a time identified you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God's salvation puts those things in the past tense. It is great. God's salvation is so great because it is a whoever salvation and it is a whatever salvation. Whatever you've done in your life, Whatever is in your past, no matter how dark and devilish it may be, God stands ready to receive you and to forgive you. That's one of the reasons that God's salvation is so great. It is a whatever salvation. Third, though, God's salvation is great because it is a forever salvation. God doesn't save conditionally. He saves completely. He saves eternally. And I realize that, that this is one of those points of debate that, that uh, we have with those who don't hold to the doctrine of eternal security. I, I, I understand that. I was preaching um, just a few years ago in Wayne County at a free will Baptist church where a lot of my family goes. You know, it's just one of those classic churches. I was kind to everybody in the church. I was cousins one side or the other. I mean, I was kind to everybody in the church. Free Will Baptist Church, our free will brothers and sisters uh, don't hold as tenaciously to the idea that once saved, always saved is, is, uh, is real. And one night, and, and, and I didn't do this to be mean, uh, but one night I felt very impressed to preach on God's eternal salvation. And so I just said up front, we all love each other. And you don't have to agree with me, but I want to share with you what I understand from the Scripture about when God saves us, He saves us completely, saves us to the uttermost. And I preached the message, and the pastor got up at the end, and he said, Brother, if that's what eternal security means, we all believe in that. And I was glad to hear it. Let me tell you what I told him, or what I told them. I took a passage like 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 where John says, I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing theological gymnastics here. I'm just taking the text for what it says. He says that you can know. Let's talk about that. Know. There are different kinds of knowledge. There is book knowledge and there's experiential knowledge. There's head knowledge and there's... there's actual experiential knowledge. The word that John uses here is the word that is to know by experience. I can, I can read a book on most anything, but that doesn't mean that I can do what that book taught me to do because there is a knowledge from experience. You know, I, I like to cook, but there are finer points of cooking that I know nothing of. And just because I read a book on cooking doesn't mean that I'll be able to walk away and cook like a master chef. There's, there's, a, there's a knowledge from experience that you can only get from experience. When John says no, he is speaking the word of to know by experience. And so that you may know by experience that you have. That word is present tense. Did you know that? Have. 
are having. You have it now, and you are having it now. So you know by experience that you are having eternal life. Now, how long is eternal? Is it just for a certain amount of time, for a short amount of time, for a long amount of time, or is it forever? And so John says that these things I write unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know by experience that you are having in the here and now life that cannot end. If at some point that eternal life can be stripped away from you, then it was never eternal life to begin with. Now, let me, let me address something, and, and this is probably not going to sit well with some folk. I, I really do not like the phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't use that phrase when I preach very often at all, unless I'm in a real, you know, in a situation where, I, you know, everybody knows what I think about. I don't like that phrase at all. And I'll tell you why I don't like the phrase, once saved, always saved, is because it gives the impression because we think saved is, is praying a prayer at the altar. Saved is getting baptized. Saved is making a decision at church. Once saved, once you walk the aisle, once you pray a prayer, once you get baptized, always saved. And so the idea is that once you go through those motions, then you don't really have anything to worry about because your salvation is sealed. And this is exactly why we got a lot of Baptists who are living like the devil out there because somebody told them one time, if you'll just say these words, then you'll be forever saved and nothing can ever take your salvation away. And so they feel like they have bought a lifetime eternal membership into heaven with just one simple little prayer and there's never been a true heart change take place in their life. I don't like the phrase, once saved, always saved. But I do like the phrase, if saved. Always saved. Because if God does a radical work of forgiveness in you, you are forever changed. Not to mention the fact that you are adopted into his family. And in adoption, God says, I choose you and welcome you into my family. And there's never going to be a time when God unadopts his children. If saved, always saved. But we bear witness of that salvation by the lives that we live after the fact. If we can go on living as if we are not saved, then the Bible gives us no reason to believe that we are saved. If anything, the Bible teaches us that if we are saved, then we're going to continue to live as if we are saved. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't establish the time parameters. I don't establish the speed at which someone is spiritually transformed. But the trajectory, the leaning of a person's life ought to be toward Christ. It ought to be toward holiness. It ought to be toward the Word. It ought to be toward prayer. It ought to be toward the Lord if a person is truly saved. Amen. God's salvation is great because it is a whoever salvation because it is a whatever salvation and praise God it is a forever salvation but I need to tell you that while God's salvation is a whoever salvation and a whatever salvation and a forever salvation it is not a however salvation we can't be saved however we choose there's no cafeteria mindset when we come to God for salvation. I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that. I don't like that at all. 
God's, God's salvation transaction is not a cafeteria. We are saved on God's terms, or we are not saved at all. We don't get saved however we want. The Bible teaches us clearly that we are saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul said there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No matter what culture says and what other religions say, there is only one way. It's in Christ alone, by grace alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And so the grace of God is God's unmerited favor toward us. We are saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Faith, though, is not just believing in some historical fact. Faith is believing enough to trust. Faith in Christ is believing in Jesus and all that He did through His death and His resurrection, but also it includes the component of repentance. And apart from repenting from our sins, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. If there is no desire to turn away from sin and to follow Christ, it doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if you believe Jesus was real. It doesn't matter if you believe Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't matter if you believe Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not willing to repent, Jesus made, he, he didn't, he didn't dilly-dally about this. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Over and over and over, he spoke of the necessity of repentance in order to be saved. You say, preacher, I don't, I don't really like the way that sounded. Well, you know, James said the devils believe and tremble. There is a devilish faith that believes in, in fact, but has no faith. God's salvation is great. Because it is whoever salvation, whatever salvation, forever salvation, but it is not a however salvation. We come to God on God's terms, or we don't come to God at all. And unfortunately, we've, we've got folks, and this is not just a, a, a recent phenomenon. This has been going on a long time, folks that want to come to God and negotiate the terms of salvation. I don't know, I don't know a whole lot about history because I was never really a big fan of history. Uh, I, I like history now that I'm not in school because now I can read whatever history I want to read and discard the rest. But but um, best I can tell in, in terms of history and in terms of military strategy that the army that has been defeated does not get to dictate the terms of surrender. The best I can figure. The army that wins, the army that is stronger... The army that is in control dictates the terms of surrender. The army that's defeated doesn't say, we'll lay down our arms and we'll raise our hands and, and we'll follow you and we'll do this or that if you will do this and this and this and this and this. No. And when we come to Christ, we don't say to him, Lord, I'll follow you if. I'll follow you when. 
Jesus said, if you want to go bury your father, let the dead bury their dead. If you want to go back and check on some land, you're not worthy to be my disciple if after putting your hand to the plow, you, you want to look back. If you're going to follow me, follow me. Don't follow me with conditions. If and when, follow me, Jesus said. If any person wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. We come to him on his terms. God's salvation is so great because it is a whoever salvation and a whatever salvation and a forever salvation. But it is not a however salvation. And it's also not a whenever salvation. Hear me this morning. There are a lot of people who, who believe that they'll live any way they want to. And then at the very last split second of their life, they're going to cash in on the mercy of God. Well, let me say, first of all, don't count on the luxury of seeing your death coming. Not everybody gets to see death coming. When my mother and father passed away 11 days apart from each other, both from massive heart attacks, completely unrelated, except that perhaps my father died of a broken heart, but you can't put that on the death certificate. When they had a heart attack, they went unconscious, never regained consciousness. They were dead in three minutes. Never saw death coming. My mother-in-law had cancer. She saw death coming with a year out. But don't count on the luxury of seeing your death coming. But second, don't count on the fact that you're even going to feel the need if you see death coming. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in living rooms with people that are terminal. People that know they just have days to live, weeks to live. No, preacher, I, I don't think I'm interested. But Mr. So-and-so, don't you understand that your life is about to be over? You are created in the image of God, and your creator is giving you the opportunity to make things right before you have to stand before him. Don't you want to make things right? No, I ain't never been much of a religious man and figure that ought not start now. Don't expect that if you see your death coming that you're necessarily going to feel the need to be saved at that time. Does it surprise you to hear me say that you cannot jump up into God's lap anytime that you want to? And yet, that's exactly what the Scriptures teach us. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We come to him as he draws us. That's why Isaiah 55, 6 warns us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There is an urgency to the message that I'm preaching this morning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Remember the Billy Graham, Marilyn Monroe story. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I read a, a survey conducted a few years ago that showed that 50% of people who have a check engine light come on in their car will drive for at least three months without getting the car checked out. You know why? Because their car is still running. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm part of that number. Because I'm driving along, I don't hear anything out of the ordinary, I don't feel anything out of the ordinary, and I know it says check engine, but my car continues to run, and it's not, it's not breaking me down on the side of the road, and, and so I just keep on driving. I have every intention of getting that check engine light checked out. And I'm going to do it when I get time. But my life is so busy that I just don't have time to get that check engine light checked out right now. And, but my, my car is continuing to drive. That's exactly what some people are thinking in their lives. Well, my life's not falling apart. And I still get up in the morning and, and uh, you know, have a happy home and children that smile. And they're making good grades. And, and, and we're making a little bit more money this year than we were last year. And we're even going to get back some on our taxes. And we're going on vacation this summer. And, 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 and I'm going to get me a new car this fall. And, and we're even talking about remodeling the house. Well, life is pretty good. I know that I'm not a believer. I know I'm not a follower of Christ. But, but after all, my life's not falling apart. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A few years ago, I was sitting in my house. I don't know how you guys do garbage out here, but, but uh, in the county where I live, and this is county and city both in Montgomery County, there is no government-sponsored garbage pickup. If you live in the city or the county, you have to arrange your own garbage collection. Y'all do that here or does anybody pick up your garbage? Okay. Is it county or do you have to pay private companies? Okay. We have to pay private companies. There is no public garbage collection in Montgomery County. And so, you know, we have probably a dozen different garbage companies. And, uh, and so I pay for this company to come out to my house every Thursday morning and to pick up my garbage. And they provide a can and Every Wednesday night, you know, they tell me, put your garbage out on Wednesday night because sometimes we collect the garbage before daylight, and, you know, sometimes it won't be until 1 o'clock in the afternoon, but it might be 5 o'clock in the morning. Just put it out Wednesday night, and that way you'll be sure to not miss the garbage collection. And I don't remember exactly why that I was at home on this particular Thursday. It might have been a holiday or something when I'd taken a few days off with the family, but I was sitting in my chair, drinking a cup of coffee, just relaxing, didn't have anything on but a pair of sleep pants. Didn't have a shirt on. Didn't have socks or shoes on. Just had some sleep pants on. I was sitting there, drinking a cup of coffee, enjoying a relaxing morning when I heard that very distinctive sound of a garbage truck. You know what sound I'm talking about, that high squeal and squeak of a garbage truck. I hear this thing, and I immediately think, I forgot to put the garbage out last night. And so I immediately jumped up, ran out the back door, grabbed the garbage. Now keep in mind, it's cold outside, and I have nothing on but sleep pants. No shoes, no socks, no shirt. That's an image you didn't need. But anyway, <laughs> all I had on were my sleep pants, and I began to run with the garbage can. Now the truck is going into the cul-de-sac. I live at the corner of the cul-de-sac, and I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that I can catch the garbage truck after it's made the cul-de-sac, and as it's coming back to that same intersection that I live at, and, and they, they pick up my garbage as they come in, but what's the big difference between picking it up when they go in or when they go out? And so I, I, I'm, I'm timing this thing out. I'm pulling my garbage can, and I'm running, and I can see the truck coming, and I'm flagging them down, I'm flagging them down barefooted, no shirt, nothing but sleep pants on, it's real cold, I've got garbage can in tow, and I'm waving, and I said, will you pick up my garbage? And the guy said, nope. And I said, oh, come on, man, I didn't have my can out, but I got it here now. He said, can't do it. I said, 
why, why can't you pick up my garbage? This thing is full. And he said, nope, can't do it. And I, I'm about to get aggravated <laughs> because I now have the garbage can at the street. And I said, come on, man, give a guy a break. And he said, can't do it. That's not our company. It was then I realized I was trying to get another company that I don't pay to pick up my garbage. And I got to thinking after that, I wonder how many people are going to run into God's presence with all their good deeds in tow. And they're going to say, let me into heaven, let me into heaven. And he's going to say, can't do it, can't do it. Oh, come on, didn't I prophesy in your name and, and didn't I do good deeds and miracles in your name? Look at all these good deeds. Surely you could let somebody like me into heaven. And he's going to have to say, those are not mine. That doesn't have my name on it. Those are not mine. You and I will only come into the presence of God for eternity because of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Not through church membership, not through the waters of baptism, not through religion, not through going through all the motions, but because we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is the beginning point. If we truly want to see God moving in and among us as a church this week, it begins with clarifying and making sure that we have settled the question whether or not we are saved. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I want to pray, and after I pray, Brother Bill's going to be standing down front, and Philip's going to lead us in just as I am, I believe he said a moment ago. And we will stand and we will sing at that time, but I invite you to come. Take your pastor by the hand and say, I need to be saved. If you need to be saved today, settle that today. Maybe you know someone, family, member or a friend or a neighbor that you want to pray for because you know that right now they're neglecting so great a salvation and in your heart of hearts you know that there is no means of escape if they neglect so great a salvation today would be a good time to pray for that person to open their heart to christ and so whether it's to come and to be saved or to pray for someone to be saved let's do business with god in this room today gracious god we do thank you for your word and for the truthfulness of it, the reliability of it. Lord, I thank you for these precious people who have given me a great deal of their time. And Lord, I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would massage this message in the hearts of every person here, not for anyone's glory, but yours. And Father, I pray for those who have long neglected the question of salvation. And perhaps have been counting on other things to get them to heaven. Father, today I pray that the, the layers of deception, the confusion, Lord, whether it's self-deception or, or satanic deception, Lord, that all of that would be just peeled back. And that, Father, we would see you as you really are so that we could see ourselves as we really are. And we could do what we need to do in being saved. So, Father, save those who need to be saved. Father, reclaim those 
who have allowed themselves to be lulled into complacency by the gentle, rocking waves of our culture. And Father, I pray that you would bring them home. Lord, do what only you can. Only you know the hearts. And so, Father, we trust you that you are at work in ways that we can see, but even more so in ways that we cannot see. And so we pause right now to give you glory and honor. We are unworthy, sinful, vile, wicked creatures that have no hope whatsoever but your grace and your mercy. And so, Lord, we receive that today, and we are grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Philip's going to lead us.